There's a feeling right now that it's particularly important to be connected to something bigger than oneself. This is what it means to be part of the covenant of the Jewish people, to be bound to our people, to our country, to Midianite Israel. During Israel's first war, the war for independence, 6,000 Jews died in service to the country. At the time, this was 1% of the total population of 600,000 people. It was clear then, and it is certainly true now, that this day, Yom HaZikaron, would be a day that would affect every family in Israel. This is what Naomi Shemer captures so powerfully in her song, Al Kol Ele. She writes, Al Advash Vela Oketz Al Amar Vehamatok, Al Bitenu Hatinoket Shmor Eli Hatov. Regarding the bee's honey and the bee's sting, the bitterness and the sweetness, please God, protect my child. With the sweetness, the joy, and the true miracle of being able to live as a Jewish nation in the land of Israel, also comes the sting and the pain of the loss of so many of our brothers and sisters who defend the land. On Yom HaZikaron, we commemorate 23,816 fallen soldiers. It is also the day that we remember the lives of victims of terror, 3,153 civilians who have been senselessly killed since the establishment of the state in 1948. During our tekes on Wednesday during Yom HaZikaron, our Yom HaZikaron ceremony, we were privileged to hear from Matthew Silverman, CGHS class of 2007. Matthew made Aliyah in 2011 at age 22 as part of the Green Sabar program. He continues to serve in an elite combat unit, extending his service several times. He is currently studying for his MBA at Hebrew University and lives in Yerushalayim with his wife Kira and their adorable daughter Neely. Here is what Matthew said. I went to CJHS way back when. I graduated in 2007 when the school was still back in Morton Grove. Um, but before that, before uh, I had graduated from, from CJHS, um, in the summer before my senior year, in the summer of 2006, uh, I went on Ramah Seminar, um, which is a six week long program uh, here in Israel where you tour the whole country. Some of you may know it, some of you may be planning on going in the coming years. Um, and during that summer, for those of you that don't remember what exactly was going on at the time, it was a couple years after the Intifada had ended a couple years before the global recession started. So it was, it was a good time, it was an optimistic time. People were happy and excited. There were, I think, four or 500 participants on Ramah seminar with us and it sort of felt like that summer, nothing could go wrong. We had the world at our fingertips and we uh, could do whatever we wanted. And then, um, without warning, uh, that summer, Hezbollah and Hamas coordinated an attack on the northern and southern borders of Israel um, that led to the capture of uh, Eldad Regev, Ehud Goldwasser, and uh, Gilad Shalit. Um, and it also led to the outbreak of the Second Lebanon War. Um, and for us on seminar, it was a little bit interesting um, and exciting, and I would even say exhilarating at the time. We felt like we were a part of something momentous, uh, part of history, a, a, part of, a, a part of something that was happening now, and, and, and we were there to witness it and experience it, and, and even to send our Israeli counselors off to reserve duty uh, to go serve in the army. 
to go serve on the front lines uh, at the time we thought was exciting. Um, and then on August 1st, uh, something changed uh, pretty dramatically, uh, at least for me. Um, that was the day that Michael Levin was killed. Now at the time, I didn't even know who Michael Levin was, um, but Mike was five years older than me. He was born in Philadelphia and he was a lone soldier. Uh, at the time, he had actually been uh, sent back to Philadelphia for a month-long vacation to be with his family. All lone soldiers are uh, granted a month during their service where they can go back to the, to the country where their parents and their, family, their families are, and they can, they can spend a month of vacation with them. And uh, he actually cut his trips short because uh, he did not want to see his unit and, and his friends be fighting on the front lines. Uh, while he was at home on vacation. So he, this, this all-American boy, decided to, to fly back. And on August 1st, he was killed in a battle in, in Lebanon. Um, and that moment, first of all, just in the immediate, completely changed our understanding of what was happening um, at the time. It, it, became, it became much more real. It became close. Uh, it could be... It, it became something that wasn't just sort of a distant, uh, um, a distant possibility. And uh, over the years uh, after he after he died, sort of this idea of Michael Levin, this legend around around Michael about this hero, started to grow. And uh, there were all these movies, these clips made about him, and all these stories that you could hear about how he actually was initially rejected from joining the army and he lied and cheated his way into the building just so he could get drafted. And then when they told him he wasn't, uh, he didn't actually weigh enough to become a paratrooper, again, he lied and he worked his way around it just so he could become a paratrooper. And he did everything in his power um, to be there on the front lines when, when the fighting broke out. And so uh, for me in 2006 and in the years uh, afterwards, sort of this idea of Michael, this, this mythological hero uh, started to grow and grow. And uh, after, after I graduated from CJHS, when I went on Ativ, a program that Michael had also done five years prior, um, just the stories that you heard about him sort of just created this, this godlike figure. And, um, and when I was in university, I decided I was also going to make Aliyah and I was also going to join the army. And Michael Levin and sort of the following in his footsteps what was a significant part of that decision. And, and I remember um, leading up to Yom Azikaron, the first year that I joined the army in 2012, I was so excited. I was uh, really looking forward to being able to put on my uniform and go visit his grave on Har Herzl and for him to see me in my uniform and to see that because of his sacrifice and what he had done, I was there now. And I was sort of in uh, the best way that I could carrying on his legacy. And I, and I thought he would be so proud of me. And so in 2012, uh, on Yom I put on my uniform and I went to Har Herzl and I stood at his graveside and, and I was there for the siren um, that happens at 11 a.m. for the two minutes. And I stood there and I paid my respects to, to Michael Levin. And then a year passed and I decided I wanted to do the same thing. So I went back to his gravesite 
and I put on my uniform and I stood there. But the difference that I noticed this year was I was actually older than Michael had ever was ever going to be. And then another year passed and I went back and I put on my uniform and I stood by his graveside. And not only was I older, but I actually outranked Michael Levin. And then another year passed and another year passed and each with each passing year, I went back and I stood by his graveside with my uniform on. And, and all of a sudden I wasn't going there by myself. Standing next to me um, was my wife, Yakira, and she would stand with me by the graveside at 11 a.m. every Yom Azikaron next to Michael Levin's grave. And as the time passed and sort of the distance grew between myself and Michael, it, it reminded me of a passage from the book Before, which I'm going to read for you now. Um, as a side note, the, the passage has actually been edited um, due to the graphic nature of the text and also just to, to save some time. Um, but I strongly recommend whoever wants to look, look it up afterwards, please feel free to do so. Um, and so, so like I said, um, this is the passage that I thought of while I was next to Michael's grave. Um, to put it into context, the, the, the passage is about two soldiers who are serving in the, in the fort of Bufor in southern Lebanon during the occupation of southern, southern Lebanon after the first Lebanon, Lebanon war. And um, the veteran soldier is explaining this game that all the other soldiers play to one of the new soldiers on base. How could you not know this game? No way you don't know it. It's called what he can't do anymore. And it's what everyone plays when a friend is killed. You toss his name into the air and who's ever there at the time has to say something about what he can't do anymore. Sometimes it goes on for hours, like on the soccer field in the middle of a penalty kick. Late at night, too, for no good reason, or when, it, or when you're at home with your girlfriend, not thinking about us at all, when the last thing in the world you want to do is play the game, when bam, the phone rings and it's us on the line. Yonatan can't, we say, and you have to, everyone has to, reel off some association. That's the rule, and you can't repeat what's already been said. Here's what I'm talking about. Yonatan can't take his little brother to a movie anymore. Yonatan can't watch Hapoel bring home the soccer trophy anymore. Yonatan can't listen to the latest disc by Tzion Golan anymore. He'll never know how great it is when your mother's proud of you for getting accepted to college, even a community college. He won't be at his grandfather's funeral. He won't know if his sister gets married. Yonatan won't know what song they played at his grave when he died. Shir Hamalot, a sound done Middle Eastern style. It became his song. Everyone who is killed has a song that sticks with his friends from the time of the funeral. For months you listen and you never get sick of it. Yonatan will never know how Itai, the medic, cried over his body, how we couldn't calm him down, how he fell apart to pieces, how he wailed like a baby. Yonatan can't know anymore the feeling of renting an apartment with his girlfriend. Yonatan can't know anymore what it is to go with her to Castro clothes and come out with a new winter collection or to Roladine Bakery in the middle of the night when it's raining, because all of a sudden she wants a donut, and anyway, you never knew how to say no to her. And here I am thinking how lucky I am that I've already had the chance to run out for donuts in the rain. And he'll never know what it's like to sit on the grass with a kid that's his very own, 
telling him stories about how we were bigger than life in those ambushes in Lebanon, how we pulled off some magnificent stuff up there. There are lots of things Yonatan can't do anymore. Um, to call Michael Levin just a hero, uh, I've started to realize is to do him a, dis a disservice. He wasn't some sort of Greek hero that was fated to die. He was just a regular kid. He was a kid from Philadelphia who never even lived to see the Phillies win the World Series in 2008. He never got to feel the joy and relief of finally putting down his uniform and gun and becoming a civilian. And he'll never know what it's like to fulfill his dream of laying down roots and creating a life for himself and his family in Israel. So today, for the first time in nine years, I didn't have the chance to be in Michael's grave. Instead, during the siren this year, I picked up my six-month-old daughter and held her close to my chest and thought about how lucky I am to be here in this moment and how sad it is that Michael can't share it with us. <laughs>